This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 10, Modernism and the Avant-Garde. Okay, last time we uh, talked about Freud and Freud's social pessimism. There's no happily ever after in Freud. There's ultimately no way to resolve all the contradictions that are inherent in the human condition. We can see them more clearly, we can grapple with them, we can try to mitigate some of the, the consequences of them, but basically there are these hardwired contradictions at the heart of social existence that cannot be overcome. Civilization is based on repression. There is no other way to have civilization in the absence of repression. That doesn't mean all forms of repression are equal or there can't be better or worse. Freud has this whole idea of what is aim inhibited. So you can kind of redirect things, like you can redirect your desire to go to war to playing soccer games, for instance. But you don't actually get rid of these aggressive instincts. You don't actually get rid of lustful instincts. Um, parenting, by the way, is all about teaching repression. <laughs> you spend your whole time as a parent, like, teaching repression. Like, yes, the other kid takes the ball in the playground and you might feel like punching him. It's okay to feel like punching something. That's normal. It's not okay to do it. <laughs> we repress that impulse or we redirect that impulse. That's why my husband put a punching bag up in the garage when my son was nine. When you get angry, you're not, it's okay to feel like hitting somebody, but it's not okay to actually hit somebody. Um, that's what all of growing up is about, you know, learning repression. Um, but there's also in Freud, so not only a kind of social pessimism, there's no utopia, but there's also an epistemological pessimism. The self can never fully know the self. Parts of ourselves, and in fact the most essential parts in many ways, will always be hidden from ourselves. There will always be mystery. There will always be dark places. This, there, there is no ultimate transparency. There is no ultimate moment where everything is illuminated. Moreover, what is true is not necessarily what is rational. And I'm, one of the reasons I'm putting this in your head is because Husserl is going to be like the alter ego of Freud when we get to Husserl. The true is not necessarily the rational. We are full of irrational desires and irrational instincts. The self is not coextensive with rationality. So there are epistemological limits and there are limits of rationality. We can know ourselves better, we can turn inward, we can interrogate ourselves, we can explore ourselves, but we cannot know ourselves perfectly. So today we're going to look at modernism, which is the third of these modernity, modernization, modernism terms, and modernism is an aesthetic response to modernity. Yeah. And it's a response to the uncertainty of modernity that is going to go off in a kind of Freudian vein. The idea of, of modernity as, as dark places, as instability, as uncertainty, as things that are hidden, as things that are not rational. 
And there are two waves here. I'm, I'm simplifying, of course, but since I only have one lecture on modernism, we have to do this. There are kind of two waves of modernism I want to talk to you about today. There's first wave modernism, which is going to be about this aesthetic response of expressing this kind of uncertain you know, and turmoil-filled response to modernity. And then there's going to be second wave modernism or high modernism, which is the avant-garde which is going to be then a kind of leap in a different direction. So the first wave is going to involve a very intense, kind of basically Freudian turn inward. And the second is going to involve almost what we could call a Hegelian Aufhebung of the first, of the inward turn, and a kind of leap away from the self, above the self, into a kind of radically experimentative temporality. Um, but let me start with the first wave. Um, classically, the first wave of modernism goes back to Charles Baudelaire in France, the French poet, 19th century, born in 1821, um, who rejected the idea that art should depict only what is beautiful and only what is good, and said, no, art, sh art should embrace also the ugly, Art should embrace the bad, art should embrace the obscene, art should also embrace the erotic, the darker side. So this turn inward, this desire to embrace one's own subjectivity and see that it's not necessarily always a nice thing. A kind of ownership of one's own deeply subjective perspective. And this is part of what my, my colleague here, Pericles Lewis, um, who is done wonderful writing on modernism and especially on European modernism. And he, de he describes this whole first wave of modernism as a crisis of representation. You know, the crisis that art and literature experiences in asking itself, how can we represent the world? And maybe the way we've been representing the world, should art be a mirror, should it be like a camera, should it be looking at the world as it looks objectively, should it be looking at the world at its nicest moment, should it be looking at the world as a flower garden, maybe that's not what it should be doing. Maybe it should be representing things that are not so clear. Maybe it should be representing things that are not so nice as a flower garden. Maybe it should be representing how things look from the inside, which is not necessarily how they look objectively. So how something looks subjectively is not necessarily how it looks objectively, because you may feel that, you know, you may be projecting your own lenses on things. Well, should an artist embrace that? The all. I'll tell you one little, also slightly unrelated, but related story. So I was, a, a year or so ago, I was in Poland and I was meeting with some Ukrainian refugees, um, women and children who had escaped from the war, um, who were staying in this small town in Poland. And one of them was a, a teenage girl. She was 14 or 15. Um, she was very sweet and she had, she had picked up Polish the fastest. Russian and Ukrainian are, are both Slavic languages, so if, you have, if you're a native Slavic speaker, you can speak a, pick up another Slavic language fairly quickly, but not necessarily instantly, and the, the teenage girl had picked it up very quickly, you know, 
faster than her, her mother had and faster than the grown-ups had. Anyway, she was very, so she was kind of helping me when not everybody understood um, and clarifying some things. But she was lovely. And the little kids there just like adored her and like held on to her. Anyway, she's very sweet. Um, and afterwards, you know, the next day she came to me and she brought me this drawing of myself um, which is now, in fact, my Google profile picture, that she had, like, she's a, you know, she's an aspiring artist, so she made this drawing of, of me, um, and she gave it to me, and I said, oh, that's lovely, that's, you know, that's beautiful, in fact, you've made me look 20 years younger <laughs> than I actually look, and she said, oh, but I painted you as you are from the inside. <laughs> no, no, it was very, like, it was very sweet. She's also just very talented. Um, anyway, I, I, I told you this, this anecdote because I want you to remember the inside. So this idea that art is now going to represent what you see as you see it from the inside, not necessarily as a, a camera would take a picture of it from the outside, okay. So this idea that, that utilitarian positivism, again, this critique of enlightenment, had drained the world of color. You know, all of this kind of factual calculation had, had made everything kind of cold and, and the same. Um, and that they needed to kind of bring back how things looked more intuitively and more emotionally. So there's a lot here. When you turn inward, you see that things are dark. This is what Freud tells us. There's a lot of metaphysical despondence. There's a lot of what in Russian is, is called bogoiskatelstvo, this God-seeking, this kind of looking for the God that's never actually found, looking for the thing that's not actually there. It also kind of overlaps with the romantic uh, Zainsuk, the nostalgia for that which never was. Um, the idea of, of the naked soul, um, which is full of irrational instincts and elemental passions, um, the obsession with the alienation of the individual, the disintegration of the social order, the individual's feeling of being outside of everything that makes any sense, lots of themes of collapse, apocalypse, despair, um, the absence of a hero, an inability to act or a fear of acting. So you see there's a kind of continuity with romanticism here, but kind of minus the total glorification of passion that you got in romanticism, I would say. And Freud is kind of the guru of modernism. You know, and the one like first wave modernism that the text I gave you is Kafka's famous Metamorphosis, which I'm sure many of you have already read, but if you haven't, this is a wonderful occasion to read it. Everyone should have read that, that book. It's very short, it won't take you that long, and it's one of the most essential kind of classic references for what modernism is and what modernity is. So Franz Kafka, who lives an unfortunately short life, um, he was born 1883 in 1924, and he is associated above all with Prague, with Prague, which was a city in the Habsburg Empire in the first part of his life and is the capital of a new state of Czechoslovakia, which I'll come back to at the end of this lecture, um, by the end of his life. And there's a circle of Prague expressionists, um, including Max Brod and Franz Werfel, and they're all, they're, they're all, there's a small number of them, they're German-speaking Jews in Habsburg, Prague. Um, and they are, what they are expressing in their expressionism is above all alienation and marginality. 
you know, they are kind of, they are prophets of alienation and marginality, and Kafka in particular. So Kafka is the one who has most classically and poignantly expressed what it means to feel alienated from everything. You know, so he has all of these comments about how he is, he is a German-speaking Jew you know, in the Czechoslovak capital. He is a German speaker who doesn't feel German. He's a Czechoslovak citizen who doesn't feel Czech. He's a Jew who doesn't really feel Jewish, you know, who's not sure he believes in God, who's not religious. I mean, basically he has multiple identities and he feels alienated from all of them. You know, and he expresses, you know, in very dramatic ways and in very beautiful ways often what it means to feel alienated from everyone and everything. Um, there's his, his diary entry of January 6, 1914, where he says, what have I in common with Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself and should stand very quietly in a corner, content that I can breathe. So the Metamorphosis, which is probably his most famous work, um, was, is, was written in 1915-1916, contemporaneous to Freud's introductory lectures on psychoanalysis. The opening line is very, very famous. You should all know the opening line. It, was, it remains one of the most famous opening lines in all of world literature. Um, there have been you know, whole tracks written about the translation into English of that opening line. Um, Maybe I'll read it to you in German first, in my bad German accent, for those of you who understand. Als Gregor Samsa eines Morgens aus unruhigen Traumen erwachte, fand er sich in seinem Bett zu einem ungeheuren Ungeziefer verwandelt. When Gregor Samsa woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. This monstrous vermin is, you know, what does it mean to wake up from unsettling dreams, which again is very Freudian, you know, and find yourself unrecognizable, transformed into a monstrosity? Are you still yourself? Is there such a thing as the self? If there is no stable self, is there a self? Is the self, is identity fixed? Is it masked? Is there anything to hold on to if there's no stable rational self, if there's no stable rational order? And one thing I would note here is that this turn to radical subjectivity does not mean stable subjectivity. And this is what Freud tells us. Radical subjectivity can be, on the contrary, the most radically unstable subjectivity. Um, Kafka asks us to think about other questions um, in this as well, and you can see is you can see a certain dialogue with Marxism: Is human identity and human value based on work production? What happens when Gregor Samsa can no longer go to work because he's been transformed into a monstrous vermin? Um, as you read this, think about comparing alienation in Kafka and in Marx. For Marx, alienation is structural, right? If you're a worker on the assembly line, you are structurally alienated from the products of your labor by the organization you know, of, of that labor um, versus the kind of psychological alienation you get in Kafka. 
It's less structural, it's more psychological. We ask ourselves through this book and at the end of this book, is that vermin? Vermin, is it an insect? Is it a beetle? It gets translated different ways. Is it still Gregor? By the end, is it still him? And we're left with, we don't know, but ultimately, in any case, we're all very, very alone. So the sense of being an outsider, of being impotent, of being anguished. Um, so first wave modernism, to kind of sum up, it's a kind of aestheticism. Um, a lot of it, there are moments in it that involve an escape into art for art's sake. Um, the world as seen from the inside, the world as seen subjectively, and a kind of license to explore how that looks from the inside. Okay, um, let, me now, let me now spend the, the last half hour or so, because this gets a little more conceptually complicated, trying to talk you through the philosophical background of the avant-garde. Say, I, I should confess, I love the avant-garde. My first book was about these Polish avant-garde poets. Um, I had done a lot of, at one time in my life, a lot of archival work on the avant-garde. I have like a very strong like attraction to these writers. Um, if modernism kind of begins more or less mid to late 19th century, especially from around 1890 through the First World War, the First World War then kind of ushers in this era of high modernism or the avant-garde. It's not precise, but more or less. This is following in time, and the First World War is a kind of a break. And there's a double movement here, because now you're going to get what was a kind of turn inward to a radical subjectivity, and now you're going to get a flight from subjectivity. But not back to where we came from, but to somewhere else entirely. And I want to start here with structuralism. The avant-gardists were not necessarily structuralists per se, but their relationship to language requires at least a preliminary understanding of linguistic structuralism. And linguistic structuralism we will come back to again and again in the class. You know, so if you don't totally get it in the next like 30 seconds, don't worry, it will kind of keep coming up. But I want to throw it out there now because it was important to these writers. Um, and the, the reference I want to give you here, I want to start with Ferdinand de Saussure. Um, and a series of lectures he gives in Switzerland between 1907 and 1911, which become his famous course on general linguistics, which he doesn't even really write. I mean, he just talks, and then his students take notes, and then after he dies, they write up the notes. And it's, so if you read through the course on general linguistics, it doesn't really read like a book that was kind of written as a book. Um, you know, it reads like you're going through his student notes, but the, the ideas are there. And the ideas, which seem very simple, become kind of revolutionary. So the first, I'm, I'm gonna throw out four things here. The first is that language is a form, not a substance. And it's one of those things that, you, again, you just have to put it in your head and let it percolate. What are the implications of the fact that language is form, not substance? The second is language is a convention. All meaning is relational and exists only within a given system or a given structure. So the fact that a certain combination of sounds references something that only obtains within a given language structure. If you go outside that structure, you go to another language, that combination of sounds doesn't indicate the same thing. Okay. 
The third thing is that any given state of a language possesses what he calls a kind of fortuitous character, meaning there's an enormous amount of arbitrariness involved. Languages were not like created by somebody's intention who brought them into being. I mean, Esperanto is a, somewhat of an exception. It's an artificially created international language as an you know, experiment by this optometrist from Bialystok, but that's an outlier, we'll put that aside. Um, basically, languages come into being through all sorts of arbitrary contingencies. And then the fourth, which is the most important point and is connected to the fact that meaning is relational, the linguistic sign by which he means the combination of the letters and sounds and the thing that represents. So the sign is composed of signifier and signified, meaning the word and the referent. So you have a word tree, and then there's the actual tree outside, or word dog, and then the actual dog outside, the thing to which the word refers. So the linguistic sign, signifier and signified, um, what is signifying and what is being signified, is arbitrary. It's defined only by contrast. The only reason, you know, dog continues to refer to dog is because it's not cat and it's not bat and it's not hog. You know, it exists in being different from other signifiers. There's no God-given or any other kind of, you know, biological determinism that says that that particular combination of letters or sounds must refer to that thing. We know that because there are so many languages in the world and they have all different signifiers for all different things. So the connection is arbitrary. Um, the relationship between signifier and signified is arbitrary. So again, it's one of those things you have to kind of put in your head and like let it, you know, let it flesh itself out. It, it's held in place only by convention. Again, it's not a law of physics. It's just our habit. You know, there's no law of physics that says that you know, the sound dog has to refer to that furry four-legged creature running around outside. I mean, we allegedly have a dog mascot at this university, but I rarely see him, which I consider myself very deprived because I love dogs. It'd be nice if there were you know, more of them kind of spread around the campus. Um, <laughs> but there's no, there's, there's no biological or physical determinism that says that that word has to refer to that thing. It's just a matter of habit, but it also doesn't mean that we wake up and who knows it might refer to something else because within a given structure, within the structure of the English language, things are held in place by convention. Okay. Um, so what we're now going to kind of move to with the avant-garde is this idea of a freeing of words. So you see that now what, what linguistic structuralism is giving us is this idea that you can think of words in a way that's kind of detached from the things to which they refer. And in some ways that's like, that's the big leap. That's the big opening. The sense that you can disarticulate signifier and signify. Um, and I'm gonna first throw out the Italian futurist Marinetti, who in 1913, um, writes a, a manifesto. Manifestos, by the way, are big avant-garde genre. 
they arguably come up with more manifestos than they do actually art, poetry, and literature. They're always like writing declarations of the thing they're going to go do or should be doing or what everybody should be doing and then like they change their mind and go into another declaration and they haven't actually produced that much literature in the meantime. So manifesto, big avant-garde genre. So his manifesto, um, the free word, words in freedom, imagination in strings. He writes about the absolute freedom of images or analogies expressed with unhampered words and no connection strings of syntax and no punctuation. So this idea that like, so let's get rid of any kind of constraint. There's, there's a big impulse here to free from constraint. There's a very rebellious impulse. So like, let's get rid of grammatical rules. We don't have to follow them. Let's get rid of punctuation. We don't have to have it. Let's disregard grammar. Let's disregard conventions. Let's play with typeface. Let's play with spelling. Let's liberate the words. Let's make the words free. Um, Apollinaire, um, the French avant-gardist, um, who was writing around the time of the First World War as well. There's a lot of experimentation with typeface, um, a kind of, kind of a facing of the distinction between the visual and the verbal, um, experimentation with layout, making words form designs, words into shapes, this freeing of words, um, and the effacing of the boundary between words and visual art. Um, so this sense that the word needs to be liberated, but then you get, you get philosophically the, the much more radical break. Um, and that comes with the Russian futurists, with Klebnikov and Kruchonik. Um, and they come up with this idea of Slovakak takovoya, which is the word as such. So they're not just going to free words from the conventions of grammar and punctuation and standard typeface, they're actually going to sever the connection between the word and the referent, between the word and the thing it represents. So that words, be words become like things themselves. They become like toys. They've been freed, they've been unhinged. You can do what you want with them. And that was an incredible source of liberation. Um, so this idea that you just kind of, you play with the words, and now form becomes everything. Because now all you have is form. Because you've divorced the word from the thing it represents. And so at the very least, you've inverted the traditional hierarchy between form and content. Um, the Ukrainian futurist Mikhail Semenko um, declared in 1914, I want ever new words each day. Again, sounds like a very simple sentence, but it, it expresses that mood. I want ever new words these days. They're kind of fetish for words and a kind of infatuation with words. Words that have been liberated. Um, so I'll take you through some of these forms of the avant-garde and then I wanna come back to the implications of these liberating words. Um, in 1915, Roman Jakobsen, who is one of the most interesting characters um, uh, and one of the most important structuralist theorists, Viktor Shklovsky and Osip Brik, um, three quite young um, Russian literary theorists of sorts, 
create a kind of society for the study of poetic language that is devoted to the autonomous nature of poetic language and of aesthetic devices. So you're looking now at the language of literature and you're bracketing, this idea of bracketing. You put something in parentheses. It's gonna be very important to Husserl too. You just kind of put things in brackets. You put them aside. So you bracket the referent. You bracket the thing to which the words refer and you study how the language works unto itself. You know, and they come up with the idea that, and we're finally getting to Shklovsky's notion of Ostranyanya, that poetic language is special. This kind of language of literature is different from our everyday language in that it draws attention to itself as language. It announces itself you know, as language. Um, it draws attention to itself as the signifier as opposed to drawing attention to the signified. Um, and this is what they're going to call obnagenia, the laying bear, the laying bear of the device. Language that announces itself as a signifier, that draws the attention to itself, as opposed to language that tries to be like, like the invisible camera, just making you see the thing it's talking about. Um, and the most important concept that I really want you to get from the Russian formalist is Shklovsky's idea of, of Ostranyanya, which is translated in a couple different ways. Sometimes it's translated just as alienation, um, although I'm not sure that's the best translation. It's often translated as estrangement, to be estranged from something, and it's often translated as defamiliarization. And the idea is that the point of this poetic language is to make the thing it's ostensibly describing seem strange by using language in a way that is not transparent, that's not ordinary. Um, and that this, this kind of defamiliarization or alienation works a little bit like the Greek pharmakos and that alienation is the it's the, the disease, but it's also the cure. Because the disease for Shklovsky is that we go around the world sleepwalking. We don't really see things. We don't really notice them. You know, he makes a distinction between we recognize things, we don't really see them. We're just so used to them being what they're supposed to be, the cup or the glass or the pen or the dog or the tree that we're not really, really seeing them. Something needs to, poetic language needs to make things weird. Needs to, like, it needs to describe them in a way that is not transparent, that draws attention to itself as language. And that's what wakes us up. That's what wakes us up and allows us to truly see. So it's both the alienation in the sense is both the poison and the antidote. The famous text here is Sklovsky's 1917 art as device. Um, the purpose of art is to break the spell of, of this automated sleepwalking way we go around life. And he says, and so held accountable for nothing, life fades into nothingness, you know, automatization eats away at things, at clothes, at furniture, at our wives, at our fear of war. 
Ostroidenia shocks us out of this habitual state. He says, it returns sensation to our limbs. And in order to return this sensation to our limbs, he writes, in order to make us feel objects, to make a stone feel stony, man has been given the tool of art. So this idea of being shaken into a moment of clarity, you're gonna see this come back. We saw it a little bit with Bergson and laughter. You're gonna see it come back with Husserl, you're gonna see it come back with Heidegger, this idea that what can wake us up. In this case, it's going to be language. Um, some more general characteristics of the avant-garde. Verse that doesn't seem to refer to anything, that seems to refer only to itself texts that are self-referential, um, a rejection of disciplinary distinctions, a rejection of lyricism and sentimentality, a lot of narcissism and self-indulgence. <laughs> um, one of the things that really struck me about these Polish futurist poets who I wrote about, who I, I loved and I kind of continue to adore, is that they're like 18, 19 years old, and they're sitting in these cafes and like scribbling poems on napkins, and they really believe that the world moves on what they're saying to one another there. It's this extraordinary sense of their own self-importance, um, which is eventually going to become unbearable. Um, I, less so for me and more so for them themselves. There's also a kind of audacity. There's a kind of, there's a kind of cult of youth among the avant-garde and a kind of rebellion about this, hither, this refusal to accept any hitherto obtaining rules, be they of grammar, be they of punctuation, be they about art, be they about politesse, be they of convention. So there's this urge to scandal, to provocation. Um, there's a very acute sense of time the idea that, you, that time is rushing forward. So you see some, some Leninism here too. This battle against what they call passeism, everything that is old that is crusty. The battle against bourgeois culture. Their revolt against bourgeois, the bourgeoisie is initially much more against the bourgeoisie in the Rousseauian sense than the Marxist sense. It takes them a while to get to like any kind of actual like Marxist sense of the exploitation of the bourgeoisie, but this sense that the bourgeoisie is they're all superficial, artificial, ostentatious, concerned with conformity and convention, and all that needs to be blown out of the water. Um, there's a famous manifesto in 1912 that the Russian futurists write in which they say, talk about, we are going to throw Pushkin, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, etc., etc., overboard from the steamship of modernity. Now here, they were, I realize this sounds like almost uncannily echoes the present moment, but they weren't talking about canceling Russian culture in the current sense. They were talking about canceling the past to usher in the future. Um, the idea that, like, that life, that light, the present is just a moment en route to the future, that life is here and now, that everything that is over is passe, that long live life, that today it is done, Marinetti writes, the past trembles. And this is the great joy, he says, of all locomotives of the spirit. They read Nietzsche and they feel like his announcement that God is dead needs to be taken as radically as possible if any compensation is to be made for the loss. They take it literally. And Zarathustra's idea that what is falling we should still push. They wanna push it, the avant-garde wants to push it. 
on, the sense that everything is possible. Now everything's been blown out of the water, everything is possible, Every, there's this dizzying endlessness of possibilities, you know, and this feeling of glorification of the new generation. So I'll, I'll read you a couple fragments of poetry. Um, Polish futurist Bruno Jaszczynski, now I am sunny, self-assured, and pleased. I, young and ingenious, go. My hands in my pockets, I take mile-long steps like the world made of suede. Um, and uh, here's Mayakulski in uh, 1914. Say, I, I love Mayakulski. Um, I still love Mayakulski. And like 20 years ago when I was doing archival work in Moscow and I, I worked a couple times at his archive in Moscow and as I was talking to like the woman there who was like the gatekeeper and the curator and trying to explain what I needed and why she should let me in and she asked me in Russian, she's like, what is it with all you American girls that you're all in love with Mayakovsky? I was like, come on, how can you not be in love with Mayakovsky? <laughs> Mayakovsky died like, you know, quite a while before that. Um, we'll get to that later. But Mayakovsky, 1914, there is not a gray hair in my soul, no senile tenderness in me, having thundered the world with the might of my voice, I, beautiful, 22 years old, go. Um, so there's, there's a surging ahead into the future, there's a cult of youth, and there's a questioning of the relationship between art and life. And here's where you get to a radical shift in the representation question. First wave modernism was about, you know, art has not been representing life in the way it should be representing. It should be representing subjectively, perhaps not objectively. And the avant-garde is saying maybe art should not represent life at all. Maybe art is not here to be a mirror to life. Maybe art is a hammer to create life. So you move from art as representation to art as transformation. And that kind of severing of that, so now you've completely severed that connection between the signifier and signified. Now it's not about representing, it's about creating. And this is going to eventually kind of lead to a free fall because you've now kind of cut the ground from under your feet. Um, I also want to mention at least briefly the internationalism of the avant-garde because it wasn't just de facto, it was very self-conscious. Um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, we have this late imperial cosmopolitanism, the Habsburg Empire in particular, as well as the Tsarist Russian Empire, these were deeply multi-ethnic, multilingual places. In the course of the First World War, four great empires fall, the Tsarist Empire, the Habsburg Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the German Empire. And when the map of Europe is reconstructed after the First World War, you know, at the table, at the negotiation table at Versailles, in which Woodrow Wilson plays a key role, what had been empires is now kind of carved up into nation states. And the theory, the theory works much better than the practice here, is that national and state borders are supposed to coincide. So now you have states that are supposed to represent something much more homogenous than had been done before 
You know, the Czechoslovak state is supposed to be for Czechs and Slovaks and Romania for the Romanians and Hungary for the Hungarians. It doesn't really go well for anybody, but that's another story. But there are now all these new borders. Now you need a passport in order to travel. You know, now you have to acknowledge that those borders are there and have their own meaning. So from a kind of innocent cosmopolitanism that a lot of these late 19th century intellectuals have, you now have a very aggressive, self-conscious internationalism of the avant-garde that is about violating those borders, that is about deliberately crossing those borders, that is about rejecting those borders. Um, you know, Sklowski writes, art was always free of life, and its color never reflected the color of the flag which waved over the fortress of the city. Um, the Ukrainian futurist Mikhail Semenko writes, I feel myself without limits. And then he says, he publishes an article, reflections about why Ukrainian nationalism is bad for Ukrainian culture or why internationalism is good for it. And Semenko says, if I don't tell you what's on my mind, then I'll suffocate in the atmosphere of your sincere Ukrainian art. I wish it would die. Um, in um, July 1921, the Polish futurists, Bruno Jaszczynski, Anatol Stern, and Alexander Vat, in the name of the Polish futurist, which was basically the three of them and their three friends, um, <laughs> write a letter to Mayakovsky. These guys are like 19, 20 years old at the time. And they write, Polish futurists establishing contact with futurists from all countries. Send the Russian futurists fraternal greetings. Beginning in September of the present year, we will be publishing in Warsaw the first large international journal newspaper devoted to universal futurist poetry in all languages. In addition to Polish futurists taking part are Italian, French, German, and Spanish futurists. Now, in turn, we approach the Russian futurist with a request to participate in our international journal. See, everybody wants to be international. They want to cross these boundaries. And it's, it, it's bound up with their cult of youth, and it's bound up with their feeling of the previous rules don't obtain. I want to be without limits. Anything is possible. Um, just very quickly on a couple of these more specific movements, um, Italian futurism was more connected to modernization, to technology, to science, um, to a kind of physical vitality, also to speed, to aggressiveness. Marinetti gets into this thing that war is really beautiful. Um, he comes to Russia at a certain point in 1914 to visit the Russian futurists, and it turns out they don't really understand one another. You know, Yakovsin was like, he just didn't understand the Russian futurist. Um, the Russian futurists were much more wrapped up in language and the autonomous word, the self-valuing word. Um, the Pol Polish futurists were more inspired by the Russian futurist. Um, although there were also moments of this kind of infatuation with technology. But let me, uh, let me read you from Gaga, the first almanac of Polish futurist poetry, which begins, primitives to the nations of the world and to Poland. The great rainbow monkey named Dionysus took his last breath long ago. We are throwing away his rotten legacy. Civilization, culture with its justice to the trash heap. Poetry 
We are allowing rhyme and rhythm to remain as they are primary and fertile. The destruction of rules constraining creativity, the virtue of awkwardness, freedom of grammatical form, spelling, and punctuation independently of the creator. Words have their own weight, sound, color, their own design. They take up room in space. The idea you make the word the thing itself. One of many boundaries being a face, the constructivist, um, we're, we're looking at utility, looking at the, like the effacing of the boundary between art and engineering, um, art and design. Again, there's this effacing of the boundary between art and life, the idea of art as creating life. There's no more border. Um, the last two I want to mention are Dadaism, which kind of comes on the heels of futurism, and my colleague Katarina Clark defined, I think, in the best way as the reification of contingency. So this sense that nothing is predetermined, anything could happen at any moment, you make that into a thing, and that's Dada. This attempt to reify in itselfness, the sense that anything is possible made into a thing, um, the, the most famous founder of Dada was Tristan Sara, the Romanian Jew who goes to Switzerland. My, my son's middle name is Tristan, after Tristan Sara, um, who um, writes about how uh, amid the cosmopolitan mix of God and the bordello, Dada is born. It's a systemless aesthetic rebellion. It's pure freedom. It aims at nothing outside itself. Sara says, I am against systems. The most acceptable system is in principle none. Um, and then we get surrealism, which kind of comes back and becomes a little more Freudian with kind of free association, this kind of psychic automatism um, w exempt from any kind of aesthetic or moral concern. Max Ernst writes the most famous definition of surrealism, and in particular of surrealist collage. He says, the coupling of two realities which apparently cannot be coupled on a plane which is not appropriate to them. So you put things together that don't go together at all. Um, okay, what happens to the avant-garde? Um, the short version is that Mussolini and the Italian futurist go to the right and join, uh, sorry, Marinetti and the Italian futurist go to the right and join Mussolini and the fascist. And most of the other ones, and in particular the Russians, go to the left um, and join the Bolshevik Revolution. Radical nihilism and radical contingency, the sense that there is no constraint and anything is possible, proved to be existentially unbearable. It was thrilling, but thrilling in a kind of free-fall-like way, like those rides at amusement parks, which I'm saying this, but I've never, ever been on them and never intend to go. The one, you know the ones that kind of drop you? And people volunteer to do that because it's apparently thrilling. Um, that's what it was like for the avant-garde. You jump into empty space, anything is possible, but there's, it's total groundlessness. And that turns out to be existentially unbearable. So there's this dizzying, ecstatic moment of crossing the boundary from artist representation to artist transformation, but then there's nothing to catch you. Um, and there's this one of the, my Polish futurists, you know, writes, and he's like, revolution is like a, a painful tragedy, a glorious fire in which you must burn yourself, descend into savagery, into barbarism, in order to discover in yourself the simple joy of life. You know, he writes, I want content, life, joy. 
Two roads lead from the Gation to the actual state of things, the road towards the past and the road towards the future, to Catholicism and to communism. Our entire freedom, our independence lies in freedom of choice. Nothing more. I want content. I want life, knowledge, joy, direct joy. In 1927, Mayakulski, who is like the gangplank, um, especially but not only for the Polish futurist between the avant-garde and the communist revolution, um, finally comes to Warsaw and, and visits the Polish futurist. He is tall, he's breathtakingly handsome, um, he has a voice that caused rooms to tremble, everybody writes about his voice. Um, Władysław Broniewski says, imagine a live, talking locomotive. Anatol Stern says, the first impression he made was precisely this, an impression of enormity. Um, another one of the poets says, I can compare the poetic jolt that I experienced reading Mayakovsky for the first time only with the unremembered impact of the voice and sight of the sky torn apart by lightning, a setting in motion, upheaval, thunderbolts, flames, everything new, without precedent, wonderful, terrifying, revolutionary. When he finally pays a personal visit to the Polish futurist in Warsaw in in 1927, they are ecstatic. They think this is it, this is the beginning of the new world. Um, and the tragic thing is that it is the beginning of the end. That is their greatest moment. Um, three years later, Lilia and Osip Brick, the part of the menage a trois, Mayakovsky is involved in in Petersburg. They were in Berlin um, in the spring of 1930 when on April 14th, a telegram arrives from Moscow saying, this morning, Volodya, who is Mayakovsky, took his own life. He left a suicide note in which he said, Lubovnaya Latka Razbilas Vbit, the love boat crashed against the everyday. This leap into anything is possible turned out to be existentially unbearable. And it ends very badly for all of them. Um, Roman Jakobsen, when he years later writes a very beautiful essay called, you know, on a generation that squandered its poets, describes Marinetti as a man who was absolutely unsuited for life. I'll see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.